Amen. Did you know it's, it's possible to see something without really seeing it? To hear something without really hearing? To be in the presence of something or someone without really being present? Consider this picture, for example. So in this picture, it was taken a few years ago in Boston at the premiere of a Johnny Depp film. And notice the excitement on everyone's faces as Johnny Depp and his co-stars walked onto the red carpet. But notice also that almost everyone in the picture is seeing, but they're not really seeing. They're, they're present, but they're not really present except for one elderly lady leaning on a fence there in the front row. Everybody else has their eyes fixed on a cell phone screen, and they're looking at real life through the lens of a screen in their hands, and she is looking at the movie stars in real life. She is really seeing because she's undistracted by her phone. Now, there's a number of lessons that this old lady can teach us. But I want us to think about one way that we are just like the crowd in that picture. Far too often, you and I see God's Word without really seeing it. We hear it without really hearing it. We're in His presence without really being present. Now, I'm sure our cell phones and other devices are sometimes part of the problem. But all too often, I think, especially for most of us in this room who have been following Jesus perhaps for many years, far too often what distracts us most is not our phones, but our familiarity. We're all too familiar with these stories. We're all too familiar with this terrain. We, we've heard this before. We're like the child that talks to his parents after Sunday school, and the parents ask them, what did you learn in Sunday school today, Johnny? And he says, nothing. I already knew all of it. We've just been around the block one too many times, and we're so familiar, we fail to see. We fail to hear. Why don't you turn to your Bibles, if you're already there, to Matthew chapter 2. This is a very familiar Bible story. If you're with us, when we started and heard Miss Sue read God's Word to us, you know this is the story of some wise men traveling from the east to Jerusalem because they saw a star. They ask about the king of the Jews, and, and they're led eventually to Bethlehem, and there they go and give him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is a story that has been immortalized in countless Christmas movies and Christmas plays. It's been immortalized in Christmas carols. It's on the, the Christmas greeting cards that we send out. It's on nativity, in nativity scenes all over the world and perhaps in your own home every single Christmas season. But if we're going to learn from this story, we need to follow the example of the phone-free lady and we need to really look at this passage not looking at it through the lens of what we think we know, not looking at it through the lens of our familiarity, but really looking at it and asking God to show us what is really there. I want to begin just by busting some of the myths about the wise men in this story. I think that the wise men are surrounded by more myths than perhaps just about any other character in the scriptures. I want you to know that all that we know about these wise men is what was read in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. That's all that we have in all of scripture about these wise men. So, just knowing that, we can know with certainty that a lot of things we come to believe about these wise men are not necessarily true. For example, what animal did the wise men ride to Bethlehem? 
Camels. And show me what verse that's in again. That person, whoever said camel, is going to say, I'm never going to talk out loud in a service again. Because we don't know. We don't know if they rode on camels. All of your nativity sets probably show them on a camel. But we have no idea if that's the animal on which they rode. The text just doesn't tell us. Uh, we, we don't know how many there were. What does the Christmas carol tell us? We three kings of Orient are. Does the text tell us there's three? No. We know that there's gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So some have surmised that if there's three gifts, there must have been three kings. But that's probably not an accurate um, assumption. It could have been as, as many as two or 40 or even more. We have no idea. Could have been a large band of wise men traveling. We have no indication that they were kings. Again, the Christmas carol leads us astray here, doesn't it? We sing, we three kings, but the text doesn't tell us that they're kings. It tells us they're wise men, but it doesn't say kings. We, we definitely don't know their names. Uh, there's a tradition that the wise men's names were Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. But there's nothing in the text that would lead us to summarize that. There's no names given. And also, and this is the thing that ruins it for some of you, perhaps, they were not at the manger. So you can go to your nativity set this Christmas season, and you can move the wise men just a little bit east because they weren't at the manger scene. If you look carefully at verse 11, we're actually told that they find Mary and Jesus where? In a house. Now, they're still in Bethlehem, but some time perhaps has passed, and Joseph has found a little bit more suitable dwelling for the family, better than a, a, a manger and a stable. There's a lot of myths that we believe about these wise men that just really aren't taught in Scripture. What do we know about them? Well, we know that they were Gentiles. You know, they were Gentiles. Verse 1 says that they came from the east. So, so these were not Jewish people. They came from outside of the people of God. This is significant because most of the Jewish people were assuming that the Messiah would come just for Jews. And here, at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, we have the first visitors that Matthew records uh, to worship King Jesus, and they, ca they come not from within Israel, but from outside it. Jesus' first worshipers in Matthew's gospel are outsiders. That's significant. The Gentiles would often be perceived as enemies to the Jewish people. It was the Gentile Romans, after all, who about 60 years before this story conquered Palestine and, and occupied this entire region of the world. These were their oppressors. These were their captors. These were the people that the Messiah would deliver them from. And yet, at the very beginning, these are the people that are worshiping King Jesus. That's interesting. We also know that they were magi. Most of our English translations say wise men in verse 1, but the original language says magi. Uh, most of us, if someone were to call you a wise man or a wise woman, your first response would probably be to say, well, thank you. Or if you're ex exceptionally humble, you might say, well, not, I'm not quite that wise yet, but I'm working on it. You would you assume that that is some sort of compliment. But when Matthew calls these men magi, what our English translations often say, wise men, I don't think Matthew intends to compliment these characters. Uh, magi, it sounds like another word that we're familiar with in our English language, the word magician or magic. And that's exactly what this is referring to. So in the book of Acts, the only other place where that word is used, it's always referring to magicians and sorcerers, people that were dabbled into the dark arts, people that were involved in the occult, people that were involved in fortune-telling and astrology and, and interpreting dreams, sorcerers and wizards. The only time this word is used in the Septuagint, which would have been Matthew's copy of the Old Testament, is in the book of Daniel. And every time it's used in Daniel, it's referring to, the, to fortune tellers and, and wizards and sorcerers. 
and those involved in the occult, priests of false gods. And so Matthew, isn't it interesting that at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he's telling us the first ones to fall at the feet and worship King Jesus are Gentiles who used to be involved apparently in the worship of false gods. And this really gets us to the point of this story this morning. When we began our study in Matthew's gospel, we looked at the genealogy, and it showed us the type of king Jesus will be. Last week, we looked at the story of Joseph, and we were invited to put our faith in King Jesus, and we looked at Joseph as an example of what it looks like to have true faith. Today, the magi in this story show us how to believe. And Matthew invites you, dear brother, sister, friend, to ask yourself, do I really see? Do I really believe? Is this really faith or is it just familiarity? Brother, sister, friend, this is so important because nothing could be worse than thinking that you believe and finding out on the last day that you didn't really believe at all. So from these magi, I want to show you three steps to real or true faith in King Jesus. Number one, these magi teach us to follow the clues. Follow the clues. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and when it rose, have come to worship him. Now, how did these magi come to worship Jesus? They, they followed the clues. They, they see a star, something out of the ordinary in the night sky, and, and they know somehow that it's pointing them to something or someone bigger than them. Now, it makes sense, if you think about it, it makes sense that if they're going to look for a king of the Jews, where would you go? You would go to Jerusalem. That was David's city. That was where King David set up his throne. So it would make sense that the, the Magi would go to Jerusalem. But how did they know by seeing a star that a king of the Jews was born? The Bible doesn't tell us. Perhaps, some have suggested that perhaps they were from Babylon, and they had heard through the generations the stories that were foretold by Daniel the prophet, and they had come to know some of God's Word, and they had heard of some of the prophecies in the Old Testament Scriptures. So, for example, um, there's a prophecy from a, another Gentile named Balaam. You may remember him for the story with his donkey. And in Numbers chapter 24, Balaam says, "'A star shall come out of Jacob.'" and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. When a star comes out of Jacob, a scepter, a king, is going to rise. Perhaps they were familiar with that prophecy, and that led them to Jerusalem. Or perhaps they knew Isaiah's prophecy hundreds of years later. In Isaiah 60, listen to what the prophet says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Isaiah prophesies of, of the day when people from the nations would see a great light and they would come and they would see the Messiah and they would bring him gifts. Perhaps these magi were familiar with that. The Bible doesn't tell us how the magi knew what they knew, but I don't really think that's the point. The point is, brother, sister, friend, that they followed the light that they had. They followed the clues that they received 
They knew that the star was pointing them to the, the king of the Jews, so they did what seemed most natural to them. They, they traveled hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles to get to Jerusalem and try to find where this king was. So here's the question I would ask you this morning, brother, sister, friend. Are you following the clues that God has given you? If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, are you following the clues that God has given that would lead you to faith in Him? The Bible tells us we've been given several clues that would lead us to look for the existence of God. One is creation itself. So uh, an astronaut named John Glenn, who was the first American to orbit the earth at age 77 after his final flight into space, said, to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is to me impossible. It just strengthens my faith, he says. Well, this is exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. God is shouting at you, I exist through the stars, through the sunrise, through the waves on the ocean shore, through a mountain, through a prairie. He is calling out to you, I am here and I am glorious. Do you see him? Or do you deny that clue for his existence? Another clue that God gives us is the conscience. Our own conscience, our own moral compass. This is not Jiminy Cricket or an angel on your shoulder. It's, it's your internal knowledge of right and wrong, good and evil. Every single one of us have it. So over the weekend, we spent some time um, with our children, and then Holly and I with our oldest, uh, watching some documentaries about 9-11. The first was a more of a family-friendly documentary accessible to children that kind of explained what happened on September 11th, 2001. And the second was an Apple Plus documentary that, that told the story of President Bush's day from the morning where he went for a run in Sarasota, Florida, to the end of the day where he gave a speech from the Oval Office and just told the story of, the day, of his day. And in both of those documentaries, Different filmmakers, different producers, different focuses, both of them recognized the reality of evil. President Bush said in his speech from the Oval Office that evening that what happened that day was evil, despicable, and the very worst of human nature. And the children's documentary, a little girl on the screen simply said, I thought that it was really sad that someone would want to hurt that many people on purpose. And I was wondering why they would want to do that. How is it that we look at those images and we recall that footage, we remember what we saw that day, and we recoil in horror at the face of evil? Because every single one of us has a conscience that tells us things are right and other things are wrong. And perhaps you're listening and you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the, the hijackers? What about their conscience? Isn't that proof that your theory is wrong? No. Because if you were able to ask those men before they got into those planes that day, they would have told you that they were doing what was holy and right. They still had a conscience, but it was wrongly formed. It is possible to form to tune your conscience towards evil to the point that you begin to think what is evil is good and what is good is evil. But every single one of us has a conscience. This is clearly taught in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. 
In other words, you don't need a copy of God's word to know intuitively right from wrong. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, brother, sister, friend, do you look at the existence of good and evil and see it as a clue for what it is, that there really is a good God who's a moral lawgiver who created the universe? And by the way, if you're in this room or you're watching online and you don't believe in the existence of God, then I would ask you, how do you call anything evil? How do you call anything evil? What's your standard by which you measure what is right and wrong? Certainly it cannot be what is accepted by society because we can all point to societies that have accepted things that we know to be evil. From slavery to the Jim Crow South to the evil abortion laws in our land today. Just because something is accepted by popular majority doesn't make it right. So how do you determine what is good and what is evil? You can really only do that honestly if you believe in the existence of a holy, transcendent, lawgiver God. So I'll ask you again, brother, sister, friend, are you looking at the clues that God has revealed in the universe and following them towards faith in God? Before we move on, let me just say to you that simply seeing those clues and following them, you're on the right track, but it's not enough. It's not enough to save you. You can look at the universe and say, there, there must be a creator, but I don't know who he is. There must be a lawgiver, but I don't know who he is. You can believe that, and that's enough only to damn you, dear friend. Listen to Paul again in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There is no person on this planet who can look at God on judgment day and say, I had no idea. So are you following the clues? The Magi followed the clues and it got them to Jerusalem, but it didn't get them to Bethlehem. To get to Bethlehem, they had to, number two, they had to hear God's word. They had to hear God's word. So the Magi arrive in Jerusalem. They start asking around if, if people know where the king of the Jews has been born. And eventually, the king of that region, a guy named Herod, hears the news. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I want to just pause for a second there because it's important to note that the Bible is not fantasy or science fiction. The, the Bible talks about real places. It doesn't talk about Gotham or Tatooine or the Shire, right? Where is this? We're talking about Jerusalem and Bethlehem. You can go there now. They're real places. And the Bible's talking about real people. There's no mention of Bruce Wayne or Anakin Skywalker or, or Frodo Baggins, but Herod the Great who, by the way, is a, is a real king that we know much about from history. Herod was the first of several kings in the Bible named Herod, often called Herod the Great because of the name given to him by a historian named Josephus. Uh, we know a lot about Herod from historical records and from archaeological excavations. This is a real king. The Bible is taking place in real history. Uh, we know that Herod was a great builder, he built theaters, he built aqueducts, he built racetracks and entertainment venues. He had an incredible fortress called Masada that was almost impenetrable. But none of those were his greatest achievement. In Matthew 24, towards the end of the gospel, it's, it's the week of Jesus' crucifixion, and they're leaving, or they're walking towards the temple, Jesus and his disciples 
disciples and they say, wow, Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings. Look at this temple. That temple was the temple that Herod the Great built. This is a man we know much of from history as a great builder. But we also know that Herod was paranoid and ruthless. I want to see a little bit more of this next week. Uh, We know from history that, that Herod changed his will six different times based on who he felt he could trust. We know that he had his wife's brother killed, then his wife, then his mother in law, then three of his own sons just to make sure he could protect his own throne. Perhaps the greatest evidence of his paranoia and his power-hungry, diabolical, violent nature is that when Herod fell sick and he knew he was near death, he made an order that some of the most popular people in Jerusalem be arrested. Why? Because he was giving them the follow-up order that the moment he died those popular people in the city would be put to death so that nobody would be celebrating the day that Herod the Great died. Can you imagine that? That sort of diabolical, egotistical, power-hungry king really fits well with what we see in the pages of Matthew's gospel. So no wonder Herod is troubled. He's a jealous, paranoid king. He's power hungry and he's just learned through the grapevine people are talking about a king of the Jews. Well, that's Herod. And so he hears there's another king going to be born. Herod, who would not save the life of his own mom or his own children, is willing to put this king to death. And no wonder the people of Jerusalem are troubled too. If a king like Herod is troubled, then nobody is safe. I wonder, by the way, how many of us are like the people in Jerusalem? What concerns us most is not finding and following Jesus, but keeping the status quo, making sure our safety isn't threatened, making sure that our comfortable lives don't go unaffected. So so what's Herod going to do? Look at chapter 2, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, Herod wasn't a Jew, but he knew enough about uh, the Jewish faith to know that they were looking forward to a coming Messiah King. So, So he calls for all the scholars, all the Bible teachers, and he asks them, where's the Messiah gonna be born? He's gotta find this baby. And listen to what they say in chapter two, verse five. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They're referring to a prophecy we we talked about several weeks ago when we looked through the minor prophets. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I want to suggest to you that there's two problems in these Bible teachers and what they say to Herod or what they do. The first problem is perhaps what they don't say. If you notice Micah chapter 5 verse 2 ends with a prophecy that that this Messiah king born in Bethlehem would be one whose coming forth is from ancient days. This is a Messiah king born in Bethlehem who existed before he was born. This is not just a baby in Bethlehem. This is God himself. It's interesting that the Bible teachers in Jerusalem leave that out. Perhaps there's something there, perhaps not, but I will say that often what's most dangerous is not what a Bible teacher says, but what he leaves unsaid. Perhaps more damning that these Bible teachers, what they do is is that 
Herod comes to them. He calls them in for a meeting. Where's the Messiah going to be born? I've heard a rumor that the king of the Jews has been born. Where is it going to happen? And they say, Bethlehem. And then they go home and tell their wives, had a great day today. Herod called us in. He asked us a Bible question, and we knew the trivia answer and didn't go to Bethlehem. By the way, Bethlehem is six miles away from Jerusalem. If you want a frame of reference, it's the same distance by car to get to Langley Air Force Base. Can you imagine hearing a rumor that the Messiah King, that Israel has waited for for hundreds and thousands of years, you hear a rumor that he's six miles away and you don't even think to check it out? And that's what these religious leaders did. One Bible teacher said, the Magi knew so little, came so far, and gave so much. The teachers of the law knew so much, were so near, and did so little. In both Herod and these Bible teachers, we see two sinful approaches to God's Word. Herod's approach is a me-centered approach. Herod says, I'm interested in what the Bible says, but only so I can prop up my power, so I can maintain my kingdom, my throne. I want to be king, and I'm interested in this insofar as it helps me build up my kingdom. Brother, sister, friend, is that the way you view the Bible? Is the Bible for you simply a ladder or a staircase to help you climb on to get what you want? Martin Luther said, a dungeon with Christ is a throne, and a throne without Christ is a hell. You can have your throne on this earth, friend, but if you don't have Jesus, you will lose in the end. The teachers of the law, they have a different approach to Scripture. For them, it's what my, one of my seminary professors called a tadpole approach. You've seen a tadpole before, Right? They're all head and little else. That's the approach that many followers of Jesus, even today, have when it comes to God's Word. It's all about knowledge and information, not about doing. These Bible teachers, they knew the trivia answer. They knew where the Messiah was supposed to be born, but they did nothing about it. I wonder, brother, sister, if you're in here and you're a follower of Jesus, how often are you and I tempted to the same approach? How often do we look at Scripture as an academic textbook to learn more facts about rather than a place to grow deeper in love with a person? How often do we approach it for what we can get or what we can know instead of who we can know? In one sentence, in chapter, uh, John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus condemns both errors. He says to the Jewish people, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Brother, sister, friend, the Bible is not about you. The Bible is about Jesus and His glory. It'll tell you some things about yourself. Most of them aren't very pretty, until you come to know Jesus, and then it's wonderful what the Bible says about you then. But the Bible is not about you. You know, we're like the people who see a big family picture, and who's the first face you look for in that photo? Where am I there? I'm in there somewhere. Oh, there I am. I looked good, didn't I? Way back then. It's what we tend to do with the Bible. We look for ourselves, and we want to see ourselves there. And again, God does show us things about ourselves, but so that you would look to Jesus. It's not about you. Jesus says, these scriptures testify of me. And knowing the scriptures is not enough if you don't know the God of the scriptures. Well, what should we do then? We should follow the example of the Magi. Look at verse 7. 
of Matthew chapter 2. After hearing from the teachers where the Messiah was, born, was to be born, Scripture says Herod summoned the wise men secretly. He probably didn't want anyone else to know he was concerned or what he was planning. And he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. The, the, by the way, the Magi probably weren't suspecting anything fishy going on, and so they told him. And verse 8 says, He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. If you know anything about what happens next in Matthew chapter 2, you know that Herod does not have worshiping this baby on his mind. Not everybody who says they want to worship Jesus really wants to worship Jesus. There will be some, not just Herod, but throughout the ages, there will be some that will use even religion as an attempt to slaughter the innocent. But what do the Magi do? Unlike Herod, unlike the religious leaders, they, they truly believe God's Word. They, they get it from an unlikely source. They hear from Herod the Great that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. To them, it didn't matter because they were not interested in, in what they could get. They're not in this to get things from the king of the Jews. They're in it to give him their worship, their affection, their adoration. They weren't listening merely for the sake of knowledge. When they get to Bethlehem and, and the star stops over this house, they don't say, okay, great, we found him. Let's go home now. We know where he is. No, they want to go in and see him. They want to worship him. So what about you? Are you hearing God's word so you can benefit yourself? So you can prop up your kingdom? Or are you truly looking to find Jesus here? Are you learning God's word like an academic textbook? Or are you truly seeking to follow Jesus? I want to be careful here, brother, sister, friend, because it is good to know God's Word. We're not, we're not advocating ignorance. You know, let's stop studying. Let's stop learning. Let's stop growing. Let's stop knowing the answers to the Bible trivia. No, know God's Word, but the, it's a means to an end. The end is knowing Christ, knowing the God of the Word. We know His Word so that we can know Him. So what about you? I want to, before we move on, I just want to pause here for a moment, and I want to tell you that hearing God's Word is necessary, but it's not enough. Okay, I want to explain what I mean by that. Hearing God's Word is necessary. Nobody comes to Christ unless they hear the truths of God's Word. Romans chapter 10 is clear on this. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God's Word is necessary. We need to hear God's Word. This is why we preach God's Word week after week, why we read it in our quiet times throughout the week. This is why we, we, we support missionaries, take God's Word and translate it into languages that don't have it. This is why we teach God's Word to our children, because we really believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ. But, but, hearing God's Word is not enough. I'm not denying the sufficiency of Scripture. I'm simply saying that if you simply hear with your ears God's Word and you never respond to it, you are not in any better condition, brother, sister, friend. I've told you before, one of the most dangerous places to be on a Sunday morning is gathering in a church where God's Word is preached. It's not because we're worried about what might come from outside, but because of what might happen in our own hearts. That you might hear God's word and glean more information, but never respond to it. 
Jesus, as he's ministering throughout Galilee, he repeatedly condemns places where he goes because he says, listen, if Sodom and Gomorrah saw the miracles that I did, they would have repented. You saw it, you heard it, and you didn't repent. You have seen much and believed little. Are we the same? Have we seen and heard much and believed little? Dear brother, sister, friend, I plead with you, don't simply hear God's word week after week. Hear it and respond to it. The Magi show us one final step. We should follow the clues. We should hear God's word. And number three, we should see and believe. We should see and believe. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Magi keep searching and they keep seeing until eventually they see Jesus. Do you remember the story of Jacob? And he meets an angel, the angel of the Lord. And he begins a really weird story. He begins wrestling with God. And he says to God, I will not let you go until you bless me. And all night, Jacob wrestled with God. Sometimes I feel like there's not enough wrestlers in the church today, including in our own pulpits, including in this one. How often do we really wrestle how often are we, like the Magi, continuing to seek and seek and seek and not give up until we see? Jesus says in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Brother, sister, friend, listen. Jesus is not playing a cosmic game of hide and seek. He wants you to find him. He wants you to seek him. He wants you to cry out to him and see his glory. He invites you to see him and rejoice with exceedingly great joy. When's the last time you rejoice like that? When's the last time you rejoice like that over the things of the Lord? The Magi don't stop. Verse 11 says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. I just, just meditating on this passage this week, the faith of the Magi amazes me. I think there's a sense in which their faith is one of the strongest pictures of faith we see in the Gospels. Think about, think about it. So many people in the Gospels look at what Jesus does or listen to what Jesus says, and they believe. You know, a blind man receives his sight, and he believes. Or someone hears Jesus' teaching, and they believe. Or, or they see him walk on water or calm a storm or cast out a demon, and they believe. And those, that's great. Praise God for that. But these wise men, they have no New Testament they know nothing of what Jesus will do. They see nothing but a baby on the lap of his mom, and they worship. That is incredible faith. Jesus has done nothing for them, in a sense, that they could see yet. Jesus has said nothing to them that would lead them to believe he, he, we said this last week, he doesn't have a halo over his head. He's a normal baby. And they see him and they believe. That's incredible faith. And then verse 11 says, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. See, the Magi don't come to Jesus as king of the Jews expecting him to do something for them. They come to him wanting only one thing from Jesus, himself. The only thing they wanted from Jesus was Jesus. 
They just wanted to be at his feet and worship him. And they were willing to give whatever they had to honor him and worship him. Do you love Jesus? Or do you love what he gives you? Do you love Jesus more than the gifts that he gives? One of the reasons why, sadly, many once professing Christians walk away from faith in Jesus is because life got really, really hard. They lost something. They lost someone. And in that moment of deep and profound loss, and I don't want to minimize the deep and profound loss some have experienced, in that suffering, they question, could he really be worthy of worship if he doesn't give me this? Can I just suggest to you, if we're asking questions like that, the problem is that we're worshiping the wrong thing, the gifts and not the giver. The passage concludes that they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. And we never hear from these wise men again. We don't know the rest of their story. We don't know who they told. We don't know what they did. We don't know if they had moments of doubt or fear or anxiety. We don't know any of it. That's it. And I think that's deliberate. Because I think Matthew wants us to know that the wise men are not the hero of this story. Yeah, they're an example for us of, of what it looks like to, to come to have faith in Jesus. But they're not the hero of the story. Who is then? Now, I was thinking about the phone-free lady that I showed you earlier. And it dawned on me that I think there's more going on here than what meets the eye. If you look at the eyes and faces of everybody else, they almost have a look of fanatical, frenzied worship on their faces, don't they? But not phone-free lady. Phone-free lady, to me, looks like a mom looking at her son, looking at her daughter, with love. I'm proud of you. Now, I have no idea who phone free lady is. I, I Googled it. I tried to find out, but I couldn't. So who knows? But that's what she looks like to me. Looks like those are the eyes of a mom looking at her son or daughter, and you see nothing but love and affection in those eyes. If you'll allow me to put it this way for just a moment, that's the way that the father looked at his son sitting on Mary's lap in a Bethlehem house. Love. Pure love. Like a daddy looks when he holds his child for the first time. God the father in a Bethlehem house sees his son and he smiles. He loves him. But God the hero of this story. His love is an outgoing love. See, God is, is not content, if we can use that word, to merely look on his son and love him. He wants others to share in that love. So think about what God does to bring these wise men here. He puts a star in the sky and enables them to see it. He reveals to them somehow what the star means. He leads them to Jerusalem lets them hear that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And years before that, he, he told a prophet, Micah, a prophecy that there would be a Messiah born in Bethlehem. And he, he preserved that in his word for these teachers to give to Herod, who gave it to wise men. And then another, the star appears again and leads them to that house. Listen, God is willing to bend nature itself and in his providence to use all that is at his disposal to draw sinners, yes, even sorcerer, Gentile sinners, to the feet of Jesus to worship him. He's the hero of the story. Now, if you don't know him, ask him. 
to save you today. Ask him to draw you. If you're here and you're in Christ, can I just tell you one more thing? An amazing thing. If you are in Christ, the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he talks about people being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're being submerged. We're being immersed, dunked in Jesus. We become united with Christ so that God, when he looks at us, he sees his Son. Do you believe, Christian, that when God looks at you, he looks at you with all the affection that he has for his Son? If you know Jesus really does. Not because you're good, but because Christ was perfect in your place. Not because you haven't done bad things, but because Jesus suffered for those bad things in your place. If you really believe that, Christian, that the Father looks at you with that kind of affection and that kind of love because you're in Christ, then we ought to be people who can't help but share this good news with others. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this incredible story. Thank you for the example of Magi who traveled far to bow down at the feet of a baby. Jesus, thank you that you came, that you would humble yourself to the point that you are sitting on your mother's lap. You who sets the tides and the seasons, you who number the hair on our heads, would humble yourself to become like us. Father, that you would draw sinners like that to your son. That's good news because that means that you'll draw sinners like us to your son too. For the Christians in this room, may we leave with wonder and awe and glory, rejoicing in the goodness of a great father who loves us and drew us to saving faith in the son. And if there's any in this room that don't know this Jesus, may today be the day that they bow down and give up the throne that they're trying to build for themselves and put their faith in Christ. In Jesus' name.